Welcome everyone to our Gem Pursuit. I'm your host, Matthew Weldon, and I'm joined by my co-host, Elise Ketcher. This week, we've got a bonus episode for you. This one is all about gold. Elise, you must be looking forward to this one. I love gold so much. For those of you who've been listening to us, you'll know that this is the episode that I'm really looking forward to. We'll be talking about how to identify gold, also the history surrounding gold, and some incredible pieces that were found, maybe even a hoard. Well, let's get straight into it. We just couldn't finish on the last episode, at least. We had to throw in a bonus episode. And today we are talking, about, I'll throw it in and hopefully there'll be a few nuggets of information in this one. <laughs> but of course, today we are going to talk about gold. It's so fundamental to lots of different types of jewellery and it kind of transcends all of the different generations of jewellery that we talked about in our Jewellery Through the Ages series. But firstly, we're going to talk about how you identify identify gold because all that glitters is not gold isn't that right Elise (laughs) I don't know isn't it no it's definitely (laughs) not and we'll get to a story about that but how do you go about identifying gold well I I thought it would be interesting to kind of go over historically how identification of gold has kind of progressed because uh, most of the time, originally, we would have looked for a, re- a chemical reaction or the lack of a chemical reaction with acid and gold. And that was originally how um, assay officers would also test gold was they would actually test it through a method called sampling. So originally, um, we would have seen, especially in the Victorian periods, when they would actually send things in to be assayed, a lot of the time people wouldn't because it wasn't a legal requirement. But when they did, um, they would send the pieces into assay offices not completely finished they would have bits of gold still left on it from the the creation process and so they would take a sample or a scraping off of the gold piece before it was actually finished they would hallmark it and then they would send it back and then the piece would be polished and finished okay i get you so they leave in like an extra part as a a preemptive strike that the assay office won't have to then file down or carve into the actual piece of gold itself. This is like a nodule sticking off. And exactly, maybe, exactly. Yeah. And this is the reason behind why most of the hallmarking took place on the inside of the, the ring as well. So um, specifically in, in the UK, um, all of their hallmarking was t- t- took place on the inside of the ring and this was protected through the polishing process where the outside would be polished and the hallmarking wouldn't be polished away. A little bit more difficult in the French hallmarks and the Spanish hallmarks, which are, a lot of them are done on the outside of the band. Uh, but as we get into the, the 90s and specifically by the time we hit 2000 the assay officers in the UK could see that the majority of their jewelry especially modern jewelry that was coming in was actually imported goods that were completely finished and so this sampling could no longer take place without an an additional uh, finishing process taking place which would cost for the jeweler who was you know, importing these items in from other countries. So they then um, started to 
use the x-ray fluorescence method to actually um, sample from the goods instead of actually taking a piece off, which would damage the piece. So now that's what is used for any kind of gold testing in assay offices. So I know that that's a long way uh, well, to I, go around, but that No, no, I think it's great to hear the development of it. And obviously yeah. it's to do with the technology and how that developed as well. And um, I suppose actually in in uh, the common theme there in terms of identification of gold is really uh, the assay office. That is how gold is identified most of the time. And uh, um, in a lot of countries, it is a legal requirement. All gold that's sold has to be assayed. And just so you know, when we say assayed, what we mean is the, the hallmarking. And there's a bit in that, actually, because uh, not every stamp on a piece of gold is a hallmark. So, for example, uh, when a piece of gold is stamped by the maker, that is the maker's mark or the sponsor's mark, but it's not a hallmark. A hallmark confirms the purity of the gold. So the maker stamps it. It gets sent to the assay office, which is your hallmarking office, if you want to call it that. Uh, and then it gets either a sample or x-ray vision. Well, it'd be x-ray now, wouldn't it? But, uh, and then it gets hallmarked in the assay office. And then the maker's mark is now a hallmark after it's been hallmarked. And, and the hallmark contains... Well, it, depend, it depends where you are exactly, but usually it contains a mark of the particular office. So in Dublin, for example, we have a very old assay office and the hallmark there is a Hibernia, which is uh, like a lady with this kind of feather thing in her hand. Um, it's stuff. That, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> that's the technical technical term for it there. Um, but, I, you know, I just say, I just say what, what, I, what you see, as in if you're looking at it with uh, an untrained eye, that's probably what you'll see. It'll have a date letter, usually, though it's not mandatory since 2002 in Ireland anyway. A date letter is just like a letter that corresponds to a date. And then it'll have some reference to the purity of the, the gold. And just to give you information about Dublin Assay Office, it was, it was actually formed in 1637 and is one of the oldest ones in the world. It probably existed for in some form for a couple of centuries before that, but it was officially uh, incorporated under charter. I believe in 1637 uh, and the Dublin assay office is run by the company of goldsmiths. Uh, so the company of goldsmiths have four wardens and they're in charge with the stewardship of the Dublin assay office um, and some interesting rules in, in Ireland as well about hallmarking goods. Any goods in Ireland, no matter their weight, have to be hallmarked. So even if you have one gram of gold, that constitutes a piece of jewelry that has to be hallmarked and in most other countries uh if they're lightweight you don't have to hallmark yeah they're, them. they're quite they're quite lenient in terms of weights in other countries but i do i do think that it's important to especially for historic purposes when i find a piece that has original hallmarks on it it helps me to determine the history of the piece very quickly, especially if it's got its date letters in it and I can see um, specific assay mark, like if it's from, if it's got a Birmingham uh, assay mark, I know kind of like what makers to look for if it's got a maker's what, mark. What would a Birmingham mark look like? Maybe what, we should run down the, uh, the marks actually. That could be useful for people. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, the, the number one mark that I always will always see is usually Birmingham uh, because it was a jewelry hub of cre like 
creation. Uh, and it still is. There's a huge, um, there's a huge jewelry quarter in Birmingham and they've also got schools over there, um, universities that cater to the jewelry industry. So it's a very, very much a jewelry hub of the world. And so in Birmingham, it is a anchor. And don't ask me why. I'm pretty sure it's got to do with a pub because (laughs) Birmingham is not a a, a city next to the water. It's not near the coast. No, it's not near the water at all. It's landlocked. Mm. So uh, the anchor, I'm sure, is from a, a local pub. Yeah, and then you have London, which is a leopard's head. Mm-hmm. Um, You've got Chester, which is closed now, but it had kind of like three turrets in shields. Um, you've got uh, Edinburgh, which has the castle turret. Um, you also have Sheffield, which originally was a crown, but the crown was, and again, that was in correlation to a pub, but the crown turned to the Sheffield Rose because the symbol of a crown also denotes that the piece is gold. Yeah. So they had to change that, um, that, that assay office mark to a, sh- a rose. I'm noticing a trend here of assay officers have deciding their marks and <laughs> they but, all like their drink. Yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And, in, and I mean, French is a, is a Eagle's head. If it's gold, there's different Spanish, Portuguese, Hallmark's Italian ones, but there's, yeah, there's whole. We don't want to get too bogged down with hallmarks because assay officers over here they have a specific mark, but in most other countries around the world they don't have an assay office mark. Um, specifically, America, very very big country, but they they all mark their gold themselves. It's very interesting that the US does not have a gold standard like assay office. It's really. Because it's, it's, it's a consumer protection. In fact, it's the oldest consumer protection because it confirms to you what the what the gold is. Yeah, just just so that people understand as well is that when we're talking about um, assay and gold, um, with gold there is not very many pieces of jewelry that will be twenty four karat gold. Twenty four karat gold means that it has no other no other elements within the gold except for gold so au that's it um on the periodic table but we most gold that we wear for jewelry is going to be you know at least 22 carat and lower and this is because gold in its purest form is very malleable um and you know it can wear away it might not tarnish or change color in any way, but it will flake bend away and, and bend and break because it's of its but, malleability. Well, that's the isn't that the iconic test that people do to test gold is they bite it to see if it's gold. Because when you find if you found a piece of gold like a gold nugget, that would be twenty four carat and that would be very soft. So that that's your teeth would go into it. Um, yeah, and as Lee said, there is a lot of other standards. Like there's 22 carat gold would be 22 parts gold for every 24. Uh, so that'd be 91.6% gold. Goes right down to kind of nine carat, even eight carat. A lot of German jewelry can be eight carat. And that's 8.33% gold. Uh, anything below that isn't really considered gold jewelry. Um, even that's quite. Uh, uh, even that's quite. 
relatively low. Sorry, eight card is is, is not uh, is a bit, a bit higher pretension than that actually. But uh, then you have nine card, which would be the standard in England and Ireland for a lot of jewelry, which would be ninety seven point five percent. Ten card, fourteen, eighteen. And 20 are the common ones, I think. So Yeah. And most of the time it's going to be how many parts per thousand that is hallmarked onto the piece or that is marked onto the piece. So if it was nine carat, nine carat is 375 parts per thousand gold. And so that is where you get your 375 from. That's where you get these particular numbers from because a lot of the time people look into the – um, look into the scent, into the shank and they see that there's this number that's written on them. They have no idea what it means. These are telling you what the kind of fineness or how many, how much gold is actually in the piece. Moving back onto the actual way in which we can identify gold. We have talked about the acid test, which requires a little sample of the gold, which means that you have to file a little bit of the gold away and then you pour an, uh, an acid onto the little flakes of gold or the dustings or shavings of gold that you've just, um, that you've just sampled from the piece. Now, what reaction would you expect to see, Matthew, from the nitric acid that you've poured onto that little area if it was gold? If it was gold, yes. it, it foams a kind of a white color. Mm-hmm. So it should have very little reaction, should have like zero to no reaction. Um, but if it isn't gold, most of the time it will foam a green color. So this green kind of bobbling look, yes, um, will will come up, and that's how you kind of know that you're probably looking at a base metal with some form of a coating, or you're looking at something that's really well mimicking gold. And there's a few, there's a lot of products out there that do mimic gold. But the acid test is a very, very good one. Um, obviously, Hallmarks is a very good one. Also, I think the weight for people, if, if you hold gold, the heft yeah. of it, mm-hmm. you should notice it's it's distinctly heavy. It's weighty. It's it's like um, and platinum is very dense too, but you should really feel it in your hand kind of. So uh, whereas some other metals, you wouldn't get that with it. Um, and if you have purer gold, it would actually be even denser and kind of heavier. The other way I think you can ent- identify gold, I know you think you're, you're going to think this is a bit unusual or a bit, bit crazy, dare I say, but uh, I actually think nine carat gold has a smell to it. It actually, this now this is people, Ross is literally looking at me like a hawk on a, like a gargoyle on the end of a building. But it is the truth. If you go to if you go to Hatton Garden in London and you take gold into um, any of the places, there's numerous places down there, bullion that will take your scrap gold. Those who are in there will literally sniff all gold items that come into them. Now, it's because that's what they do all day, every day, and they know the distinct smells of each of the golds, which is real. I know it sounds really strange, but it is true. It has a certain smell to it, um, which I think is something that you kind of, it's like with diamond grading, your eyes have to be adjusted to grading those diamonds. And even when you're a diamond grader and you go away for a couple of weeks, it takes about a week for you to get back into 
your swing, eye to get back it. into it. Yeah. And it's the same with gold. If you're if you're there all day, every day, and you're you're smelling this metal, it has a distinct smell to it, and it's a great way to tell its identification and the final point i'd say if you're looking at gold jewelry look at the contact points so that if it's a chain where the chains rub or if it's a ring where the kind of the if, if there's edges of it or anything like that and if it's just gold plated which means there's like a, a thin layer of gold on top of a base metal or silver usually where it's rubbed you might be able to see a different metal underneath it and that's just a little handy way of qu- quickly identifying it but um but I mean, I would, you know, the hallmark would be first uh, for me and then obviously all of the other methods that we talked about. I mean, this is an interesting one in terms of value in gold because unlike a lot of the other pieces and sections that we talked about at least, uh, gold does have an observable price that you could Google into your phone right now and Google the price of gold and uh, the moment it's about $1,700 an ounce which is about 55.6 grams uh, an ounce and uh, you can value it that way but uh, there's a bit more to it than that isn't there? there? There is I mean in terms of currency and the way in which we um, value gold today it's really a, a great question to ask ourselves why do we value gold the way that we do how has it become this kind of currency all of its own um and i was reading up on this a lot actually <laughs> last night and i was looking through the periodic table and all of the elements that are on the periodic table and most of the obviously we can't monetize gas like in our keep it as a currency in our pocket it's not something that we can carry around with us easily um so that kind of like strikes them off of the yes. the periodic table as so a big as, chunk of it would be gone yeah as an element that we can use for money and then a lot of them are poisonous so again certain certain ones will be striked off the periodic table as a currency for that reason. And then when we look at it, there's only really a few elements and they are gold, of course, is one of them. Silver is one of them. And then we have um, things like platinum and all of those that live in the platinum family, like palladium and so on and so on which all have eventually been uh, become a kind of currency Currency. of their own however the there's other ones as well like iron which could be used as something uh, of a currency as well however the reason behind why we don't use something like iron is because it's too readily available so the perfect currency is something that is that can be taken around with you in your pocket but is rare. And so this is the this And to is, give you uh, yeah and to you yeah, totally agree the scarcity it has to be scarce. I think there's a visual thing as it well like gold looks kind of like yeah. you just want to like touch it and hold it but But it's a noble metal as well. So these are the noble metals we've got you know that not a lot of um, not a lot of external elements can change them, and so again, that's another reason behind a currency or something that is valued by human beings. 
I totally agree with Elise. They're readily available thing. And to give you some idea in, into that, per annum, about two to three thousand tons of gold are mined per year, which sounds like a lot. Um, but don't for don't forget that it, you know a ton of gold is not voluminous it's quite a small thing because it's so dense so like volume wise it's actually quite small but to put that into context in one year in the u.s in 2019 i believe uh 37 million tons of iron ore were extracted so two to three thousand of gold 37 million that's sorry that gold figure is globally as well whereas the the other one 37 million of iron ore is just the us uh, globally it's about 130 million tons um to put into comparison to another valuable metal which people do trade in in terms of scrap a lot 1.3 million tons of copper were mined in the us in 2019 so again there's only two to three thousand tons of gold globally in the us alone there was 400 times the amount of copper mined so you can see just how rare gold is and if you were to get all the gold in the world and to get into one giant block it would be a cube that's about 21.9 meters uh each side i would turn them into coins and i'd be like scrooge mcduck and i'd be like swimming in the coins do you remember that when you were a kid did you watch that yeah that'd be me Uh, no i never watched that but uh (laughs) i wouldn't go too deep because they're pretty heavy and they'd probably crush you but um so that's just to show you gold is so rare about 50 percent of the demand of gold is actually for jewelry 7.5 percent is tech and there's a whole host of other reasons investments and otherwise make up the rest of it so when you're valuing gold and the other thing is to mention Bretton Woods in terms of value gold. But if you listen to our 1940s episode, we do a piece on the Bretton Woods conference. And I definitely recommend listening to that to figure out how it's tied to the dollar and to other currencies. So with gold pieces as well, not all gold is equal. We've just kind of spoken about that in the identification process, what nine carat gold is going all the way up to um, 24 karat gold. But just to give people a, a little bit more of an understanding when it comes to value, obviously the more gold that you have in an item, the more expensive the item will be. That's why when you get nine carat gold pieces, which are 375 parts per thousand gold, they can be half the price of an 18 carat gold piece. And that's because they literally have half the amount of gold in the piece. So when it comes to valuing actual gold jewelry, um, it's important to remember that if it has more gold in it, you it will command a higher price. There's so much that you could talk about in terms of trade tips and things to look for from buying gold. But I think I'd like to go first on this one. Um, And as as you mentioned in our value section, at least, obviously the higher the carat of gold, the the more valuable the piece of metal is. Obviously, the higher purity of gold and therefore um, it has a higher amount of gold relative to the total weight. But... The trade tip I'm going to give you is that uh, the first thing I look at, and this is one I use day to day, and it's a very good rule of thumb, is that the higher the carat gold, usually the better the gemstones and the better the 
make of the piece of jewellery because if you're going to sit down and make a beautiful piece of jewellery, you're going to, you know, plan it out, you're going to design it, you are going to use the higher carat gold because it's going to be a fine piece. You want it to be purer or more valuable, you're going to use the higher piece. If it's a mass-produced piece or if it's a, a lower grade of piece of jewellery, typically they'll use the lower carats because it's cheaper gold, not as much time gone into making it, and so they stick with the lower carat of gold. And the gemstones, uh, just to give you an example, a dealer came in and he actually sells modern jewellery. This particular shopper and used to buy off him, and we don't really buy off him anymore. But, you know, uh, he came in once or twice after we we, per- we purchased the shop, actually, and he kind of said, oh, this is, our, this is our nine carat gold range, and, you know, he's like, this is, you know, there was, they were usually set with garnets and set with different stones, and then uh, then he got to the 18, and I go, oh, can I have a look at the 18 carat range? Uh, no, we don't buy this new jewellery anymore. We've uh, we've learned, we've seen the light, right? Um, but, <laughs> but, um, he... I never bought new jewellery. Anyway, going on. He, well, I only once or twice I in, in my eras of when I was learning the business, uh, and then I quickly learned that it was a, as a no-go. But um, the, I, he showed me the 18-carat gold range, and it was more than twice as expensive. He goes, oh, well, you know, the 18-carat gold range, the, you know, there's higher-quality gemstones, blah, blah. And what he was saying is, look, I'm making 18-carat gold. I'm putting in better gemstones because I want it to be a nicer piece of yeah. jewellery. And, and that's just... Uh, so when you look at your piece of jewellery, if you find something that's 18-carat gold, it's probably going to be a decent piece. That's a great tip. Now, I would caveat that by saying I've... Uh, I've noticed that in certain locations, sometimes uh, they still can set, you know, lower quality gems into 18 carats. I notice in, uh, we've done a bit of spying around Europe and Italy and Spain, and sometimes they'll set glass into 18 carats. Um, it's just they. It's just that, funny, that in those places, there's only 18 carats. And also, um, specifically the Italians, they love richness of gold. And so the more gold, the color of gold, if you've ever gone to a museum and you've seen 24 karat gold pieces of jewelry, they almost look like the sun. Yeah, They look like they're very, very bright, bright yellow with a, a an amazing metallic sheen to them. And this is the kind of gold that the Mediterranean, the people around the Mediterranean love. They love that very, very rich gold coloration. So 18 carat is going to look closer to the pure gold form than what any lower carat gold is going to look. But that's a great tip, Matthew. Uh, What have you got in store for us? Any... uh... My nugget Fool's gold, which is pyrite, by the way. (laughs) My golden rule of thumb today is all about antique gold and jewelry. So one thing that I get asked quite a lot is, do you have this in rose gold? Do you have this in yellow gold? Do you have this in antique gold? And I, I really wanted to kind of differentiate or kind of shed some light on the colors of gold that we see in antique jewelry. So one thing that I really want to get across is that in antique times, so we're talking Edwardian, Victorian um, and Georgian times, there was no standards of gold that in terms of color. 
So today we have specific mixes that are used to create uh, what we now view as rose gold, what we now view as white gold and what we now view as yellow gold. But these mixtures were left to the goldsmiths of those times. They weren't given a method. They weren't given a specific recipe. They did what they wanted to do. And so when you look at antique pieces, a lot of the time you're not going to see a specific rose gold. It might have a rosish tinge to it. Um, and this will mean that they've used a little bit of copper in the mix when they were alloying their gold. Or it might look very, very yellow because they've used maybe a little bit more yellow gold than uh, more gold than they've used in previous pieces. And there's no real standard. So like if I look around um, now when I look at the pieces, some of the pieces look more yellow than others. Some of them look more rosy than others, but they don't have a specific rose color. They don't have a specific yellow color. They all have their own colors. And this is because gold was mixed by the goldsmiths the way that they wanted to, to mix it. So that's something really important to kind of remember when you're looking at antique pieces of jewelry. We're looking at handcrafted designs by artisans of those periods who didn't have the boundaries that we have today they were left to their own devices and this is what makes antique jewelry really special and also it makes the gold pieces that you get in these pieces uniquely your own such a good trade tip i love the word recipe when you say it it just it conjured up an image of a cauldron and some jeweler mixing in different gold yeah. and what color will I get but well these were um, these were special these was this was people's livelihoods it was their artwork and they didn't they like contrary to what everybody believes nobody was sharing all of the knowledge that they had it was something that you you know you were apprenticed to someone and they taught you their recipes and they taught you their skills and that's and that's what antique the whole antique jewelry business was about is was creating something beautiful the way that you were taught and then putting your own flair on it and i love it so much you know i was thinking of trade tips and this didn't quite make it but the way you, you, you you described it there like that the antique jewelry can have like this kind of a, a bloom to it like or a patination and it's also one final uh can i say no good again is that too much <laughs> <laughs> one more gold finger <laughs> uh, um is that if you have this these antique pieces of jewelry they get this gorgeous bloom or patination and it doesn't look like a mirror. It just, it, what happens is just basically over hundreds of years, they've just got this pattern, which is lots of little micro abrasions on it. And the goal looks soft and luxurious and almost like you could eat it, which you shouldn't. But uh, I think the word that you're looking for is patina. Patina. What was I saying? <laughs> the, like the look on the outside oh, of the yeah. gold. But you're, yeah. you're talking about the patina of the, the gold. And that's something that you can't get in a day it has to be from hundreds of years of wear or even you know decades of wear and do not polish that you know if 
sometimes people say, oh, we want to get this polished up to a high polish. Like, you'll ruin the value of it if you do that. Now, um, there's always ways of making it to return it, but the authentic, and it's the same with silver as well, the beautiful old silver pieces you find have this gorgeous look to them. That patina has just built up over hundreds of years, and you should never polish that to a bright finish. Gold staff, Matthew. Hey there, Maddie here. I just want to take a moment to let you know about our Gem Pursuit newsletter. With each new podcast, we're going to start sending out some supplementary podcast material, just to point you in the direction of any interesting items that we've discussed on the show. If this sounds like something you're interested in, simply go to our website, courtville.ie, scroll down to the bottom of the homepage and enter your email address. And that's it. Now let's get back to the episode. So history and lore is our next section we're going to talk about. There's so many famous stories of gold in history. I've picked two stories. I don't want to say the two of them if you... Because I know there's a good chance you picked one of them. Well, I'll I'm, say one and then you can say one. How about that? Okay. Yeah. Uh, what you do, Midas. Go on. <laughs> King oh, Midas. Okay, King Midas. Yeah, well, we can do them together. <laughs> king Midas was king of Pythagoria in Greece and he was famous because he was always, you know, kind of greedy and avaricious. And there's a few stories about this particular king. And I couldn't look up if Pythagoria was anything to do with Pythagoras and his theorem about triangles. But anyway. You digress. I digress. But King Midas, so he's famous for um, for his greed. And he met one day on his travels a fellow called Silenus, who was a friend of a god. And he, he, uh, he treated Silenus very well and was very kind to him. And in return, he got granted one wish. From Dionysus. Dionysus, yes. The god of wine and frivolity. Wow. The Greeks had the best gods. (laughs) (laughs) So he, he got granted this wish. And he wished that everything he touched would turn to gold. And you will hear the phrase, you know, the... The man or the the man with the Midas touch or the woman with the Midas touch. And um, this was great. You know, he was everything he touched had turned to gold. And, you know, obviously this brought a lot of wealth and prosperity. But the problem was every time he tried to eat something, it would turn to gold. And uh, this actually drove him to the point of starvation where he um, met Dionysus and he wished to... uh, you know, to go back to normal, get rid of this this uh, talent that he had. And he was granted the wish. He had to wash his hand. He had to wash his hand in the river. It said the river turned gold for a moment. And today you can find gold alluvial deposits. Alluvial deposits is like just a, a word for gold and water. The legend of that comes from Midas. It does have a great element to it in terms of learning about how gold can can really turn us into greedy human beings. And I think that's what that particular story was trying to, you know, teach us is that, you know, gold is fabulous, but you don't want everything to be turning into gold. And it's not, not everything is about gold. My story that I chose was a story about El Dorado. And we all have probably heard the about this mythical place called El Dorado, which was supposed to be a hidden city by the of the Incas, where they had all of this hidden gold, a city of gold. It's never been found because it's believed to not exist. 
but that did not stop the Spaniards and many other explorers trying to find this lost city. Again, a story of greed. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. Gold stories about greed. Yeah, Gold stories about greed. But I love this particular myth because... Well, I like what was what's actually behind it because it is a folklore story and it has driven many people kind of crazy in this search for this city, especially in the 16th and 17th century when, um, you know, Europeans were like the new world and there's this lost city called El Dorado that has gold and many people, you know, then came over trying to search for this. It all kind of stemmed really from a native tribe that lived up in the Andes Mountains, which is now called Colombia. And this particular tribe, what they used to do when a new chieftain arose to power, they would go to Lake Guatavita and they would cover their new chieftain in gold dust. So his whole body would be gold and then he he and a bunch of different jewels would be thrown into Lake Guatavita and then he would be announced as chief. It was believed that in this particular lake that there was an underwater god and this this kind of was to appease the underwater god. This is where they got the name El Dorado from because it means the gilded one in Spanish. So this is what the Spaniards kind of called El Dorado was this chieftain. And then they started to try and search for where that they were getting these riches from. And it's believed that this tribe was taken over by another tribe. And so it like no longer even existed as a tribe anymore, but they still were in search for where the source was of all of this wealth it got to the point where the Spaniards actually tried to drain that river to look for the gold underneath it. And they did find gold on the sides of it. They were, they were able to bring the lake down to a certain point, but they weren't able to fully drain, remo- it. drain it from that waterway. And I find it's like, this is, this is really, you know, crazy. We're talking, we talk a lot, a lot about, um, jewelry, but this is colonization. The the greed um, for this gold uh, turned so many people into, you know, machines to try and find this source of gold. And El Dorado is still something that people continually talk about today as this place that exists. When really, I don't believe it did. I think it's something that you know that was created in their minds because they wanted it to exist. But don't they have these like like laser technology now that they fly over the Amazon and they can like graph what's beneath the canopy and they're finding like these mysterious cities all over the Amazon that are obviously overgrown with jungle now but there's like lots of them. It's not like the Amazon was not a a, a abandoned jungle all those years ago. It was like there was a, a series of uh, cities and even only recently they found an eight mile wall in the Amazon with ancient paintings on it. Um, that like just like an eight mile wall that they just found like like these treasures they are still hidden there, which is why it's not 
impossible that there's cities there that are yet to be found that could have gold in them but obviously you know well there's there's definitely resources there like we're not we're not um stating that the resources aren't there they they definitely were they when in i think it was uh, in 1545 was when the spaniards tried to drain the river they lowered it and they did find hundreds of pieces of gold like on the shores of of this particular lake when they did try to drain it. But what I'm talking about is, yes, of course, like there is treasures in the world, but it shouldn't be driving people to this kind of level of insanity. But what is it about gold that does that? You know, because I, I, I've seen it. It's, when people see gold, in the, even in the shop here, if they see a beautiful piece of gold jewellery, they're... It uh, it almost appeals to like something like primeval and like deep in someone's psyche. It's it's incredible actually. It definitely sparks something in the human race because when we look at any of the ancient civilizations, we also um, have the ink. Well, the same Incas they believed that gold was the sweat of the sun, and then we have the Egyptians who, of course, their sun god Ra is always depicted with rays of gold either surrounding him or surrounding the god or surrounding the the area where it's actually depicted. I think the Maoris call the sun god Ra as well. Do we they? do. Yeah. We do. Uh, we call the sun Ra. And then you've got gold rushes that literally brought hundreds of thousands of people into certain areas. The most famous gold rush was the Californian gold rush, which happened in 1848 to 1855. And could you hazard a guess at how many people you think that particular gold rush brought into California, Matthew? 1840 something, 1848. So the United States was formed in the late 1700s and basically the West was the Wild West. So there wouldn't have been that many people, but I would say maybe brought in 100,000 or something like that. 300,000 people. So, you know, with the lack of transportation and you know, very, very hazardous place to live, as you said, the Wild West, people flocked to California to try and find their fortune. Um, and many did. Many did find their fortune in gold. Yeah, that's what I... It's uh, And there was, there was other ones as, as well, but that's what I love about the um, map of America. If you look at the population density, the whole East Coast, very densely populated, but the further west you get, it's still quite sparsely populated, actually. But the gold rush, obviously, about 300,000 people moving at that time would have been a vast amount of people. In Definitely. terms of resources to, like, to feed and water that many people really would have been something pretty impressive. One a little bit closer to home, a bit of gold folklore here. There is a little things in Ireland called leprechauns. I was <laughs> so hoping that you were going to talk about this because I was like, hello, it is like folklore here. Folklore here, yeah. And leprechauns are these kind of mythical little creatures which Tricksters. kind of, you know, they usually have red hair, like knee-high boots and green thing, green suits. You know, I don't know. That's obviously been that's obviously been uh, paddyized for the global market, right? But it's uh, the the legend is that if you got to the end of a rainbow, you'd find a leprechaun with a pot of gold. Have you ever got to the end of a rainbow? I am the rainbow. I see. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I don't quite know how to no, respond to that. Th that's the thing. This is why. <laughs> this is why. 
this is why I call leprechauns little tricksters because you can't get to the end of a rainbow. It is a mirage. It like moves with light. A bit like Mr. Midas. Uh, he wanted all the gold in the world, but it ended up leading him down a, a dark path. If you chase leprechauns, you'll never get there. And uh, there is a story in there somewhere, but I'll leave... <laughs> I'll leave that up to our listeners to try and decipher. Another folklore or um, fairy tale, let's say, from like medieval times, I would say, is Rumpelstiltskin. And Rumpelstiltskin was, you know, was a bit of a trickster himself. And he, the miller's daughter, said that she could turn straw into gold and um, she made a deal with Rumpelstiltskin that she would give her firstborn child to Rumpelstiltskin if he would turn the um, gold, the straw into gold. And he did. And so she became a princess and then blah, blah, blah. And then she had a baby and then she <laughs> yeah, blah, blah, blah. She, and then she kills Rumpelstiltskin. And one, one more example I'll give is that. Uh, a, a book that I read in uh, school. Oh my gosh, you can read. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of pictures in this book, but Silas Marner is all about a, a weaver. Uh, it's a third novel by Marianne Evans. Of course, her pseudonym was George Eliot, published in 1861, and it was about a, a weaver in England who basically he was kind of a social recluse, you know, was quite successful weaver, accumulated a lot of gold. And then one night his house was broken into and the gold was stolen. And um, it was one of the local landed gentry had actually stolen it. But on the same night, uh, well, I think I just, God, I hope, if you haven't read it, I hope I haven't just ruined the end for it. But long story short, short it only transpired at the end, this became, this became known. But when he lost his gold, he actually, someone left a child at his door with golden hair and his love for the gold was replaced with the love for this child and us. It's a really good book and it's, it's quite iconic, actually. So um, recommend reading it. We do have so many stories, so many things that go on when it comes to gold, but we could only touch on a few. We're going to talk now about some famous gold pieces in history. Iconic gold jewellery and other things that are made of this precious metal just to give you a few ones up front the Ryder cup made of gold Cheltenham cup that's gold world cup gold ascot gold cup also gold um, olympic medals not olympic, gold are they gold no really no they're are you not. sure yeah <laughs> i just want to think that i looked up i was like yeah olympic gold medals no they're not You'd feel hard done by it, wouldn't you it's pretty hard to win an olympic gold medal yeah yeah no yeah they're not they're not they're not gold. They're gold-plated, but yeah. They look gold. Well, all that glitters is not gold. But I want to talk about one very special piece of gold. And it's it's a... Like, uh, these ones are famous, and you could talk about how they're made and where they come from. I mean, the World Cup is completely iconic. I mean, everyone knows that, um, what that looks like. But... Um, the, sorry, the soccer, the soccer World Cup. Oh, you know, oh, okay. it's got the sphere, the globe, and then the hands. And no, I'm going to talk about a piece much closer to home, uh, and it just ties into a bit about what we were talking about. You know, we mentioned that there was an Irish assay office that was formed in 1637, 
but antique Irish gold pieces that are that old are extremely rare. 15th, 16th and 17th centuries, really rare. But there is a record of one special piece that was in the inventory of the Duke of Leinster. And the Duke of Leinster was at different times the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, which is basically the king in Ireland. So like it was a very important person at the time. And what they had in this inventory now with this piece has vanished if you find it it would be fantastic find from a particularly from an Irish perspective and from the history of gold it would be quite interesting but what they had in the inventory in addition to an incredible collection of silver and I've had I've handled some pieces of silver from the Duke of Leinster they had a gold salt cellar or gold salt holder quite a large one that stood upright uh, and you're probably thinking gold salt like why would they have made a salt holder essentially out of gold like that wouldn't have been one of the most important pieces but when you think of the time salt was actually a very very valuable resource uh, it wasn't like today where it's you know it's you can buy it in the supermarket salt is very valuable and very rare at that time and even if you look at the history of salt the romans called salt salubrious crystals and that is where the word sal, which is uh, where is the word salt comes from today. But also that is where you get the word salary from. And people used to actually get paid part of their payment, salary, in salt, believe it or not. My gosh. Yeah, the Roman soldiers, part of their remuneration was paid in salt, which is where the phrase not worth his salt comes from because they used to actually buy and trade slaves for salt. And if a soldier wasn't worth his salt, it means that he wasn't even worth what a slave would have been worth. So that Amazing. is why that important, so only important pieces would have been made of gold. That's why a salt cellar would have been actually a very important piece at this time. It's a currency. It's a currency. In fact, people actually use, uh, and this is not a podcast about salt either, but they would have had uh, Moorish traders would have used salt slabs, which are called amoles. Uh, my pronunciation probably isn't great there, but these were about 10 inches long and two inches thick slabs of salt, which they regularly traded ounce for ounce for gold uh, in the early centuries uh, AD, Anidamo. So this particular salt cellar was recorded in the inventory of the house contents of the Duke of Leinster in the late 1600s and hasn't been seen since. Who stole it? It's pro probably been melted, I'd say. Um, because it would have just been such a weight of gold in it. Um, like Sorry, I, I just I, wanted I, to know for myself. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, no, <laughs> I, I've seen... I've seen... Um, there was a, a jewellers in Cork who did make pieces of solid gold. Uh, Egan's of Cork. And they... They were one of the last Irish makers to make, you know, impressive, sizable pieces out of gold. I actually once handled a cream jug of theirs, which was made of solid uh, 18 karat gold. And it was actually the replica of a Georgian Irish cream jug. And I was so lucky that I was working in my dad's shop at the time. We actually had the original silver one and the gold replica uh, in one cool. piece. We sold both of them to the same person, actually. And that's a, that's a very impressive collection to have. Super rare. I mean, the only one. Um, but these days, you just, you just don't see it. Very, very interesting. I love 
the amount of gold pieces that I've seen during my research for what I was going to choose. But I thought I'd choose something that was a bit of, more of a intriguing story uh, because gold pieces, there's so many incredible craftsmanship that we see in the Victorian period. Of course, there's gold work that we see from the Aztecs. Um, the Egyptians as well had some fabulous pieces of gold. But the, the hoard that I want to speak about today is the Hoxney hoard, which was the largest late Roman gold hoard that has ever been found in in Europe and it was actually found in Suffolk but it was the the story behind how it was found is quite funny it was a farmer who was working on his land and he was using a hammer and it was his favorite hammer and he dropped it and he couldn't find it anywhere so he hired a metal detectorist enthusiast to come and try and find his hammer and so he came with his equipment to try and find his favorite hammer and he ended up stumbling upon this hoard of Roman gold which <laughs> if you think about it this happened in 1992 so if you're on your farm and you're like where is my favorite hammer you found your hammer and more the, I don't think hoard, you care about the hammer if you found that <laughs> the hoard is supposed to have been approximately from the 5th century AD and it contained 7.7 uh, pounds of gold and 52.4 pounds of silver. Um, it included 200 items of silver tableware, silver and bronze coins, and it contained 14,865 gold coins. Um, there was also a large amount of gold jewelry, which included bangles and um, other kinds of figurines. Now, the hoard was estimated to be at the value of $4.3 million once it had been, once it had all been taken out of the ground. Now, um, what I thought was quite funny was the farmer decided that he and the detectorist would actually give the hoard to the British Museum. And when they did gift it to the museum, he also gave them the hammer, the, his favorite hammer, which started it all, which I thought was hilarious because, yeah, that is a part of history now. Even though it's a hammer from 1992, it is the discovery of it's the way that this hoard was discovered. And I really wanted to bring back into back into the this podcast that although, you know, there's a lot of kind of stories about greed and colonization and the way that gold has has driven people in certain ways, it also, there is also light at the end of the tunnel with this particular story, you know, someone who finds something on his land, but really what he wanted to find was his favorite hammer. And at the end of everything, he gifted his favorite hammer, which started it all to the museum as well as a part of the whole story, 
which I thought was fabulous. So that's it. We're going to wrap up the bonus episode there. As always, I'd like to thank my co-host, Elise Ketcher, for joining us today. Thanks, everyone. And I'd like to thank our producer, Ross Hannon, for putting it together. Thank you. And we are going to take a couple of weeks off from recording the podcast. Keep an eye out on this space. Most of all, I hope you've really enjoyed all of these episodes. Make sure to get in contact. If you have any questions or any points of interest that have peaked while you've been listening to these episodes, don't hesitate to contact us either on Instagram, which is at Matthew.Weldons, or you can email us, which is experts at courtville.ie. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter, which you can do through the homepage of our website. And I look forward to chatting to you all soon.